Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a truly exciting episode. In this podcast, I partner with World Wildlife Fund. We're going to learn the critical role mangrove forests play in coastal adaptation and the work WWF is doing with their Mangroves for Community and Climate project. You'll hear how WWF is applying its three core adaptation strategies, ecosystem-based adaptation, nature-friendly adaptation, and climate-smart conservation. We'll dig into these strategies a lot further in the episode. This is one of those special episodes where I got to travel someplace really amazing. I went to the Yucatan in Mexico, where I got to meet and learn from mangrove experts from all over the world. Mexico, Madagascar, Colombia, Fiji, Australia, and the U.S. They came together to share their expertise and knowledge and develop new tools to help mangroves persist in a changing climate so we can rely on their important services for climate change adaptation and mitigation into the future. Before we begin, I want to let you know about the background sounds you will hear. Some of the transition sounds are from our visit to the Mexican mangroves during our field trip. Yes, we were sloshing around knee-deep in mangrove mud. We hope it gives you a little sense of being on the ground in Mexico with us. Okay, let's join Sean Martin of World Wildlife Fund as we journey to Mexico and learn the value of mangroves for coastal adaptation. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Sean Martin. Sean is Vice President for Adaptation and Resilience at World Wildlife Fund. Hi, Sean. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. Really glad to be here. All right, Sean, for those who haven't heard you on this podcast before, can you briefly give us some background at what you do there at WWF? As you said, I'm the Vice President for Adaptation and Resilience, and I have a small and mighty team that works with communities, the private sector, governments, humanitarian agencies to help people adapt to climate change in harmony with nature. All right, fantastic. So we're going to talk about this episode. We're going to discuss WWF's three core strategies for adaptation. Can you give us some more background on those? Yeah. So, Doug, you remember when we went to Kenya in 2018? Fondly, yes. Well, that turned into an episode number 80 of the America Daps podcast, if your listeners want to go back and check it out. But during that workshop where people from all over the WWF network came together to really dig deep on our adaptation work, and we came up with three principles that have since turned into our core strategies for adaptation. The first one is using nature to help people adapt or ecosystem-based adaptation, sometimes called nature-based solutions for adaptation these days. The second strategy is what we're calling nature-friendly adaptation, complementing those ecosystem-based adaptation measures with other measures that reduce or avoid harm to nature. So think of things like rainwater harvesting or early warning systems. So they're not using ecosystem services, but they're making sure that people can adapt without harming ecosystem services. And then the third strategy is climate smart conservation, managing climate risks on ecosystems to ensure that they exist into the future so that we can rely on them for ecosystem-based adaptation. So what we're doing with these strategies is building a three-legged stool. You need all three strategies for adaptation to be successful. If any one of them is missing, the stool collapses. And we'll get into all of these deeper in the podcast. All right, that's great. And so we're going to be talking about the Mangroves for Community and Climate Project, which this, this whole episode is about. Can you provide some additional info to my listeners about that project? 
Sure. So the Mangrove for Community and Climate Project received a generous grant from the Bezos Earth Fund in 2020. It is not an adaptation project. It's a mangrove conservation project designed to address the climate crisis. And there's three areas of work in this project, one of which is building community and ecosystem resilience to climate change. And it's in this area of work that we're applying the three core strategies that I just talked about. So in this episode, we'll do a deep dive on each of those three strategies and talk about how we're applying them in the Mangroves for Community and Climate Project. Okay, so we've got an amazing lineup of expert guests in this episode, and we're recording this after I've done all these interviews. So I can just say how fascinating these conversations were for me. But who are we going to hear from here? We're going to hear from a number of WWF staff in the U.S. and in Mexico, and some scientists who are doing some important research on mangroves and adaptation. Before we get into the three strategies, we'll get an overview of the Mangroves for Community and Climate Project from Karen Duthwaite, who's leading the project at WWFUS, and from Pilar Jacobo from WWF Mexico. And so after we get an overview of the project from Karen and Pilar, we're going to divide the episode into three segments, each focusing on one of the three core strategies that I talked about. We'll hear from scientists and additional staff to learn more about those strategies and what we're doing to help people adapt in harmony with nature. All right. Fantastic. Well, let's kick this off with Karen Duthwaite. I'm Karen Duthwaite. I'm a director within the WWF US Oceans Program. I lead a body of work focused on the conservation and restoration of coastal ecosystems, and I lead the overall implementation of the Mangroves for Community and Climate Project across the four countries, uh, Fiji, Madagascar, Colombia, and Mexico. All right. Can you give us an overview of the project? The Mangroves for Community and Climate Project is focused on strengthening the conservation and restoration and management of mangroves in four countries around the world. We're looking to have an impact across a million hectares of mangroves for climate mitigation benefits, but also climate adaptation benefits. Our project focuses on three main areas of work. The first is on strengthening the protection, management, and restoration of mangroves. The second is focused on building community resilience to climate change, uh, as well as ecological resilience to climate change. And our third line of work is focused on finance. How do we think about more innovative finance mechanisms that will allow conservation and restoration and management of mangroves over the long term? Okay, and I guess in that first goal of protection, restoration, carbon sequestration is a part of that? Carbon sequestration is a part of that. You know, mangroves are are really tremendous in terms of their carbon storage impacts. They store four to five times more carbon than tropical forests, and so they're really important. They occupy a, a relatively small amount of land but have big bang for their buck. And so by conserving and restoring these mangrove areas, we're able to protect not only the carbon that is currently stored in the soils but then sequester additional carbon as, as those trees are restored. So what is the state of the world's mangroves today? So we've lost about 50% of the world's mangroves, but there is good news. The loss rate over the last 10 years is about 0.04%, which is great. But they are still under threat, of course, from agriculture, aquaculture, uh, clearing for coastal development. And they're really important to communities who depend on them for fuel wood and and for building materials. So we are still losing mangroves, although the trends are, are definitely declining in the right direction. Do we have a sense of historically where mangroves were? Like, is there some sort of ideal level of mangroves or is there even the desire to even restore more and just where you can do that? 
Yeah, I mean, our best maps are only about 20, 25 years old. As global satellite imagery became available, we have a much better understanding of where mangroves are and where they have been. You know, they're tropical trees. You find them across the tropics in more than 100 countries. So they're pretty widespread. There are lots of opportunities for restoration, and that's one of the things we're really trying to do through this project, but also through other efforts. All right, so what are the biggest threats they face? So currently, some of the biggest threats, they're they're often cleared to create fish ponds and aquaculture. They're also cleared for coastal development, things like hotels or houses or those sorts of things. They're used by communities for their, they harvest mangroves for both building materials and fuel wood, in particular situations where they might have been impacted by a large storm or hurricane. Communities are looking to rebuild immediately, and so a lot of times that will, they will source their wood from the mangroves to reconstruct their houses. Climate change is also, is increasingly a problem. You know, changes in global precipitation. We're seeing more frequent and more damaging hurricanes and cyclones. Those are having a greater impact on mangrove uh, ecosystems themselves. And of course, that trickles down to the communities who depend on them. All right. Obviously, WWF prioritizes mangroves. What are you guys doing to help conserve them? So we're working in a number of countries around the world. We're working from the local to the national level. You know, on the, on the local level, we're working really closely with communities to actually strengthen their ability to inform how these mangrove areas are managed and inform their natural resource management overall. Um, things like monitoring, things like management plans, things like what are the pieces that need to be in place for communities to be able to uh, depend on these places over the long term. At the national and international level, we're working on linking science to policy, thinking about what are some of those opportunities to conserve and restore mangroves and how might those be linked to global commitments and advocate for inclusion and nationally determined contributions or other policy mechanisms that will help governments understand and commit to conserving and restoring these areas. Um, We're also doing a lot with science. You know, mangrove restoration is is something that has been done for for decades now, but unfortunately it's been done incorrectly in the majority of cases. And so the survival of these trees that get planted over the long term historically has not been that high. And so we've developed a mangrove restoration and tracker tool that's aiming to help to fill this data gap and help us understand what are those key steps both on the front end when you're planning your restoration, what are the things that you need to be thinking about, but then also on the back end, tracking the success over time and really understanding what some of those most important factors for success are. And then finally, one area where we've been working a lot is in developing partnerships and working with other organizations who are also conserving and restoring mangroves. WWF is a founding member of the Global Mangrove Alliance, which is a coalition of over 30 organizations that have come together around a shared common agenda for mangrove conservation and restoration. And so we're looking at, you know, where can we collaborate on key scientific questions or or developing some of the tools that we think can have the greatest impact in changing the trajectory for mangroves. All right. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Pilar Jacobo, I'm the Nature-Based Solutions Coordinator for WWF Mexico.
I'm coordinating the nature-based solution approach for our office, and I'm also in charge of coordinating the implementation of Mangrove for Climate and Community Project, which is um, it, uh, at the heart of the project are the mangroves and the coastal communities. Uh, we have uh, different scales of the project. One is national and, and another one is regional and local. So at a national level, we're trying to promote the conservation of our mangrove cover in Mexico and at a regional level, promoting the same conservation and restoration efforts. And with at a local level, just working with communities that rely on mangrove ecosystem services. Okay, so what are some of the biggest threats facing mangroves at these sites? Yeah, it's very different for each site in Mexico. So for, for Yucatan Peninsula, uh, the major threat is non-planning for urban development. Yucatan Peninsula, it's a very attractive place for international tourism. So the, the lack of an urban planning could have a high risk on the mangrove. In the other side, in the Pacific coast of Mexico, Marismas Nacionales, it's more related to unregulated uh, productive activities, more specifically like aquaculture or fishery or even livestock and agriculture. Okay, so how is climate change affecting these mangroves? Well, it, it also depends on the region. Like, for example, here in Yucatan, what we've been seeing as a major threat is just increasing in temperatures, and which affect the the evaporation of the water that the mangrove depends on. And if you have high salinity, that will affect uh, our mangroves. Also, in, in Yucatan Peninsula, is in the path of uh, major hurricanes of the Atlantic Ocean, and so the the strong winds for the hurricanes affect the the composition of the mangrove forest. It also affects the hydrology of, of the water. So the water is a major key aspect for mangrove health. So it, it will affect by the changes on the fluxes caused by the hurricanes. And the other side of the coast, climate change, it is more related about the changes on precipitations. So when we have high precipitations, uh, high storms in a very short period, the water from our watershed is coming suddenly, like overflowing the rivers, and that also is changing the hydrology of the mangroves and affecting those that specific balance between oceans water and river waters will also affect on the health of the mangroves. Okay, some people who are doing conservation don't always think <clears throat> that they're doing adaptation and they don't necessarily see the overlap. So how is climate smart management different than, let's say, a traditional conservation plan? Mm-hmm. Well, I will say it's different. Like conservation, you can fail if you if we keep just doing conservation in as business as usual. So adaptation means that you have on your mind what are the trends. Like we there, we cannot deny it. We're seeing changes. We're going to have more changes. So we need to start considering those changes in our traditional conservation and actions. And that was that was different. All right. You've mentioned a few of these, but what, are there any other additional challenges that you've faced implementing the plan? Yeah. I mean, several. It's it's crazy to mention this, but it's hard to, for the people to identify what is because of climate change and what is not. 
what we've been seeing is that most of the changes that we've been seeing is due to climate change, but because it's, there are very like slow changes in a very long period of time, people sometimes get used to those and they start to see it as a normal thing to happen. So that's a very important challenge in how we communicate that this is not normal and this is something that we need to work on. The second challenge specifically is just a lot of interest on conservation, but not a lot of interest in adaptation. So we need to start combining those agendas, or not combining, just maybe trying to do that at the same time. And not just talking about adaptation and conservation, just start doing those things together, and I think we have a better impact. All right, final question. Do you get a chance to talk about mangroves, you know, to people out there in the public or friends and family kind of thing? Do you, do you get to talk about mangroves and what, what are some of the challenges of doing that? Yeah, it's a very interesting question because me as a biologist, like, I remember studying and my career, it was never mentioned the importance of mangroves. And, and in Mexico, for example, if this thing that we always say, like, we're the four country uh, uh, in mangrove coverage, 60% of land coast is covered by mangroves, etc. And I don't, I'm still trying to understand why it's an very unknown ecosystem in Mexico. I'm starting to talk about my my family, my friends, and what I'm seeing is uh, just a difference. Like, I don't know if, of course, it's not because me talking to them, but I'm, I'm seeing a lot of more, a more communication on TV, on the news, even on uh, yeah newspapers. So I think mangroves are starting to have a more recognition, and the more we talk about them, more recognition that we're going to have them. And I think it's part of picking the right words to describe mangroves, as how fascinating they are that they're a forest that grows in the sea, floating forest, and just, just trying to impress them. And immediately they just go to Google and start looking about mangroves, and they were like, wow, this is really what you are doing. So this is incredible. Okay. One more question. If someone comes here to visit, any restaurant you'd recommend for them to check out while they're in the city? In Merida. Oof, it's several. But, yeah, I think my favorite one, it's named Chaya Maya. So if you want to try very traditional dishes from Yucatan, which is very different from other parts of Mexico, I think we should go there. A lot of dishes made of pork uh, with different sauces, so highly recommended. Okay, great. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Doc. All right, that was great. We heard from Karen and Pilar. Now we're going to talk about your first strategy a bit more. We're going to use nature to help people adapt. Can you elaborate on that strategy? So, Doug, this one, I think most of your listeners will recognize. It's often called ecosystem-based adaptation or nature-based solutions for adaptation. Conservation groups say that nature provides many services for people. We call those ecosystem services. And one of those services is protection from extreme weather and other climate shocks and stresses. And what we're really doing is restoring, managing, and protecting nature so that the ecosystem services that nature provides helps reduce the vulnerability of people. But to do that well, we really need to understand both the strengths and the limitations of ecosystems and how much protection they can actually provide. 
In this segment, we're going to learn how mangroves reduce vulnerability for coastal communities, what they're good at, what they're not so good at. First, we're going to hear from Dr. Siddharth Narayan at East Carolina University, who's doing a lot of research on the value of mangroves in providing coastal protection. And then we're going to hear from Alejandra Calzada at WWF Mexico, who's going to tell us how they are using mangroves to help people adapt to climate change in the Yucatan Peninsula. Okay. I'm really excited to share these two next interviews. Siddharth is doing some really interesting work, actually really surprising work around mangroves. And then Ollie, I wanted to put a plug in for Ollie. She was so helpful down in Mexico and just explained so much to me when we were on the bus and when we were at the workshop. And so she had a lot of great things to say. Looking forward to sharing their stories. Hey, adapters. Joining me is Dr. Siddharth Narahan. Sid is an assistant professor in the Integrated Coastal Programs at East Carolina University. Hi, Sid. Welcome to the podcast. And I know I mispronounced your last name, so can you correct me for the record? Yes, sure. It's Siddharth Narayan. Okay, thank you. And my apologies. All right, so let's jump into this. Tell us a bit about yourself and your research, and how did you become interested in mangroves? Thank you. I did my civil engineering in India for my bachelor's, and I was introduced to the coast there as an elective. And then I was looking for a master's degree in coastal engineering and came across this master's degree offered in Europe by TU Delft in the Netherlands. And I got introduced to coastal engineering and as a subject there, I fell in love with the subject. And for my master's dissertation, I was looking for something that relates engineering with ecosystems because I've always had a passion for conservation and making sure our ecosystems stay healthy. And that's where I got introduced uh, to mangroves, actually. For my master's dissertation, I used an engineering model to look at a mangrove island off the coast of eastern India and the protection that it provides to the coastline and the port behind it against storm and cyclone waves. So that was my first introduction to mangroves. And since then, I've, I've kept coming back to it. All right. I love the mangrove ecosystem. I grew up with it in Florida, so I, I appreciate your appreciation. Okay, so you have an interesting background. Would you consider yourself first and foremost a climate adaptation professional or an engineer or a researcher? I call myself an academic engineer. I use my engineering training and tools to investigate issues of coastal hazards and their relationship with coastal ecosystems. So it's a little bit of a mix between the three that you mentioned, a little bit of um, feel like I'm an engineer, researcher who focuses on adaptation issues. I think you hear a lot about that, people getting involved in the adaptation space. Okay, so how are you collaborating with World Wildlife Fund specifically? My collaboration with WWF is again on this issue of uh, mangroves. And we have been discussing a project to look at the coastal protection benefits that mangroves provide to people who live in or sort of adjacent to these mangroves in different countries around the world. Okay, related to that, we hear a lot about how important mangroves are in protecting coastal communities from increasing climate-related hazards. What kinds of hazards do mangroves provide protection from? Mangroves generally act as barriers on the shoreline against high waves and storm surges and the flooding that occurs when you have a storm approaching a shoreline. And they also protect against high winds during a storm as well. Okay, I don't know if you can speak to the broader 
issue of the protection or of your specific area, but are there estimates of the economic value of this mangrove protection? Yes, I was part of a study uh, that recently came up, I think 2019, that was recently published that looked at the global coastal protection benefits of mangroves against storms. And uh, we found in this study that, if I remember correctly, mangroves protect around 15 million people around the world every year. So we were looking at what we call annual benefits. Uh, So these are year-on-year benefits where you account for multiple storms. And they also protect around $65 billion in buildings and assets and industrial, residential, and commercial property on the shoreline from flood damages during storms. Do you see from your own experience, I look at these economic studies and they say, here's the, the value of this economic value. Do local communities actually use these economic estimates? Sometimes there's a disconnect. There'll be these studies saying it's this much value to it. But then when you're actually having people on the ground, do you see examples of people out there taking advantage of, okay, this is actual economic value? That is an excellent question. And I think there is this disconnect. uh, And it often, you know, also has to do with the scale of the study. So for something to speak to a local community or local decision maker, that study really has to be tailored to that local context. Uh, now, it's also, for example, there's similar work that I did in with salt marsh wetlands and Hurricane Sandy in the U.S. Northeast, where there were several local decision makers and communities and agencies who reached out for data specific to their region or location. Because it's also true that even if you produce a global study or a large uh, nationwide study, it's always true that the first thing that you do when you look at a map is to zoom into your location and see what the values are there uh, to the location that you call home or wherever you are. And so there is a lot of interest in these values. um, And I think it sort of represents the start of a conversation. So whenever we have a large scale study and it provides a value for a place, That becomes the starting point for a local conversation for people to say, hey, look, our area has been highlighted here. Maybe we should look into this a little bit more. Okay, let's do a little mangrove 101. How do mangroves actually provide protection on talking about the root systems or or is it the trees themselves? It is both. So mangroves have a complex structure. They are uh, trees that can actually in some parts of the world get really high and they have they have a complex root structure and then they have their trunk and then they have a complex uh, canopy as well. And all of these together provide this barrier, I would say a semi-permeable barrier essentially to the flow of water through it. And so as water flows through these trunks and these canopy, it gets slowed down, it gets diverted. And that's what provides the protection benefits to whatever is behind these mangroves. All right. So do you need a lot of mangroves to be effective, I guess, for coastal protection or do do a little bit, I guess, the smaller forests go a long way? That depends on the context. There are situations where a small forest can go a long way. So, for example, in my master's dissertation that I did in Delft, looking at the mangrove island off the coast of India, I found that a 300-meter belt of mangrove actually provided really significant benefits in terms of reducing cyclone wave heights. 
And this width to benefit uh, relationship can get a bit nonlinear in that your most of your benefits are often provided by the first few hundred meters of mangroves. In terms of storm surges and bigger storms, uh, you sometimes need larger widths of mangroves. So say, you know, extending up to a kilometer or more than that to see some appreciable effects. All right. So I find this really fascinating. Your research in Florida showed that mangroves provide better protection in some areas than others. And in fact, in some cases, mangroves may do more harm than good. That to me is just sort of goes against what most of what we've learned. Can you give us a bit more information on that? Absolutely, yes. And I think this is a really important point uh, when we are considering ecosystems as, you know, using and managing ecosystems as natural defenses. So these mangroves act as semi-permeable barriers. And what they're doing is to slow down the water and divert the water so that whatever is behind them actually sees reduced uh, water levels. Now, when that slowing down and diverting of the water happens, that water has to go somewhere. And you often see uh, an effect where the water levels in front of the mangroves are higher than they would have been if these mangroves had not been there, simply because the mangroves are slowing the water down. And so that's often where you see these areas where, for example, we've built out in front of mangroves so that we're between the oncoming storm surge and and the mangroves behind us. There you start seeing higher water levels because of the presence of mangroves, and therefore you see greater damages. And I say, you know, the analogy to this is when we build a levee or a seawall, we instinctively know that being out in front of that levee or that seawall is going to be more dangerous. And so we don't build out in front of a levee. We don't build out in front of a seawall. And similar to that, we should be thinking very carefully about where we build in relationship to mangrove forests and equivalently salt marsh wetlands when we are planning to use and manage these as natural defenses. All right. So what do you think might convince more people to support mangrove-based adaptation? I think... What needs to happen is for us to have a complete understanding of what exactly are the benefits that mangroves are providing us. And importantly, what would our coastal situation and life and risk exposure look like if these mangroves were not here? If these mangroves were developed over or converted to other land use or just lost to sea level rise, what would our lives look like. And I think having that understanding would help decisions uh, regarding mangrove management. Okay. 10 or 15 years ago, using ecosystem services to reduce climate vulnerability was called ecosystem-based adaptation. Now people seem to be using the term nature-based solutions more often. Do you see a difference between the two? And is the constant introduction of new terms causing more confusion that's getting in the way of your work? (laughs) I, I I don't see a difference between the two, but I do agree that okay. there's almost too many terms being thrown around now. And, you know, ultimately, I think it's just good practice. Uh, we, we are just having to define a term when we use it and say, this is what we mean. Um, there's also often this danger of using these terms as a catch-all for almost anything. And it, when we lose specificity, then um, the term itself tends to lose some importance. So I just think it's important to define exactly what we mean, whether we say ecosystem-based adaptation or nature-based solution or actually, you know, ecosystem-based management was sort of the original, uh, what was the term that was used before ecosystem-based adaptation. So it's been changing and it's important to define exactly what we mean. 
Is there anything else you'd like to share with my listeners on the importance of mangroves and adaptation? Yes, I think that the issue of mangroves being natural and dynamic is an important one to consider as well. As we start considering nature-based solutions, you know, it's different from building a seawall or a levee. It's static, it's not going anywhere, and it's going to stay there until it degrades or until we modify it. But Mangroves and other ecosystems are dynamic. They respond to the environment around them. They change in form and shape. And that dynamism can be challenging when we are putting measures in place for adaptation. But it's also an opportunity at the same time because it forces us to think at a much larger scale, at a landscape scale, and make sure that the landscape around these mangroves are healthy because that is important for their uh, survival as well. All right. Final question. You've probably visited a lot of mangrove forests around the world. Do you have a favorite and why? (laughs) I actually think my favorite so far has been the mangroves and coral reefs that I visited on holiday. So not during work in the Florida Keys at the John Bennekam State Park. I think the it was there was something about it. Maybe it was just the time of the year, uh, but it was a very special visit, and I still remember that one. Well, I've been there. It is very special. It's a great spot. I mean, I love all mangrove forests, but that's a good one. All right, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and thank you for doing the important research that you're doing, Siddharth. Thank you, Doug. Great pleasure talking to you. Hi, I'm Alejandra Calzada, and I'm the Climate Change Adaptation Coordinator at WWF Mexico. So tell me what you do there at WWF and your role in the Mangroves for Community and Climate Project. Yeah, so I am based in the Yucatan Peninsula, and I'm here because I'm coordinating the implementation of a couple of climate adaptation projects here in the northeast end of the Yucatan Peninsula. And we mostly are yeah, overseeing the implementation of projects that are focusing on two main pillars, which are climate adaptation and conservation and restoration of coastal ecosystems. So mainly working with coastal dunes and also mangroves, but how we can work with communities to protect and restore those to reduce the risk that the population are facing to climate hazards. Okay, we're going to step back just a little bit. So how do mangroves help reduce vulnerability to coastal climate hazards? So the the main function that we are trying to support is that they are a physical barrier from coastal hazards. And when we say coastal hazards, we mean like flood from storm surge specifically, but also erosion. With climate change, sea level is rising and erosion is increasing and storm surge could potentially be higher. So mangroves really are a physical barrier preventing infrastructure, roads, communities from flooding. So that's the main thing that we are trying to push out into the world. But there are other things that they do. You know, they support livelihoods directly and indirectly, like mainly tourism and fisheries, which are the two of the most important livelihoods here in our region. Okay. You talked a bit about the value of mangroves to this area, but more broadly in Mexico. Do you think the people of Mexico, the government of Mexico, understands the value of mangroves? I think increasingly mangroves are being talked about. So, um, yeah, I think 
the term wasn't used as much maybe 15 years ago. Now more and more people are maybe at least slightly knowledgeable or at least have heard the term. I think there's still a lot of work to do. We still need to work with people, with governments, with uh, companies. Although the rate of degradation globally has decreased significantly, there's still change going on. And so that means that we, we haven't finished our work. And do you get a chance to talk about mangroves when you're out there in your community, friends and you just people that aren't in the space here? Do you talk about it? Are you? Is it something that people might roll their eyes at or do you get to those opportunities? My sister actually set up a webinar for me, just people like family to talk about mangroves. It was not a webinar. It was just a Zoom call that where I taught my close family about the basics of mangroves and she is keeps insisting that I should do that with a broader group of people, just friends who have never heard the term or like, I haven't really done that, but I will. Oh, I love this idea. And any interesting questions from family members? They're like, we finally know what you do kind of thing. They don't really know what I do. Okay, Sean, we're back. So it was really interesting to hear from Siddharth. Usually we think of mangroves only in a positive way of protecting places, but the notion that there are limits to this coastal protection I thought was really fascinating. And it definitely gives planners more tools when you're thinking about coastal adaptation. So what did you think about that aspect of what he had to say? I think his research is really spot on. We need this kind of information to get past the silver bullet approach we're taking to ecosystem-based adaptation, that if we have nature, everything's going to be all right. And uh, Siddharth provided a lot of insights that I think is a good segue into this next segment. All right, let's go to the next strategy. And this one isn't as intuitive as the first one. Right, it's not. Uh, just to remind your audience, the second strategy is to use complementary measures that avoid or reduce harm to nature. So we often talk about nature providing ecosystem services like protection against coastal storms. You know, mangroves can do that, but nature can't do everything for people. There are gaps. Mangroves protect against storm surge and flooding, but they don't tell people when a storm is coming. They don't provide water when there's a drought. And so people need more than just nature. We need to understand the limits of ecosystem-based approaches and then fill in the gaps with other measures. Now, what we find is when we talk to people that if people aren't prepared for a storm or a flood or a drought to cope with those hazards, often what they're doing is responding by degrading nature. And that's undermining our first strategy. Okay, Sean, in this next segment, we're going to hear how WWF is applying this strategy in the Mangroves for Community and Climate Project. So who are we going to hear from? Right. So we're going to hear from two people. First, we hear from Luz Cervantes. She works on our Environment and Disaster Management Program, and she's going to talk about her work with our team in Madagascar. And then we'll head back to Mexico, where Claudia Duran will talk to us about what she's learning directly from communities by applying our climate crowd methodology. All right. I think people are going to find this really interesting. And I didn't get a chance to really talk to too many people on the ground out in the field. And so talking to Claudia about Climate Crowd was really interesting to me. But can you give us a bit more information about Climate Crowd? 
Sure. So Climate Crowd is one of the programs that my team leads. Uh, you had Nikhil Advani as a guest on your podcast a long time ago. He leads the Climate Crowd program. And this is really a community engagement method. With Climate Crowd, we go out into the community and talk to people to learn which climate shocks and stresses are having the greatest impacts on their lives and livelihoods. And then we're trying to find out how are they responding to those hazards? And then do their responses have any adverse effects on nature? So then after we speak to enough people in an area like the Yucatan, for example, we analyze all that information to look for trends. And then we present this information back to the communities to help them identify adaptation solutions that not only improve their lives, but also reduce pressure on nature. And then we provide resources to implement those solutions. So that's Climate Crowd. All right. So we're going to hear from Luce and Claudia. And Sean, you're going to come back right after that. All right. Talk to you soon. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Luz Cervantes. Luz is the Senior Program Officer in the Environment and Disaster Management Program at World Wildlife Fund. Hi, Luz. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining. So tell us a bit about yourself and some of the work that you're doing there at WWF. Yes. So I am a part of the Environment and Disaster Management Program. So we sit within the Climate Adaptation Team at WWF US. And what we do is basically we work to integrate environmental considerations into disaster risk reduction and recovery programs. So we really are supporting people to understand the connections between environment and disaster work and understand how nature can play a role in community well-being and resilience to extreme events. Okay, great. So we have already learned from other guests in this episode about how mangroves can help reduce risk to coastal flooding and storm surge. So have the communities you are working with in the Mangroves for Community and Climate Project experience these actual hazards? Yes, they have. So the project locations are all in coastal areas. So the countries face multiple hazards, but in the project areas, one common issue is cyclones and associated flooding and storm surge. Um, so actually, just this week, Madagascar suffered from the impacts of a cyclone, Janesso, and uh, it has affected both the eastern and western coasts of the country with heavy rain, flooding, heavily impacted also the project locations. There are also other hazards that are affecting these countries and the project locations, for example, earthquake, landslides, erosion, and flooding. And we learned that strong winds are also a big problem for local communities. All right. So what happens to mangroves following a disaster? So that's a great question because we don't often think as disasters affecting the environment, but they affect more than just people. And so disasters really also are a cause of degradation in terms of the ecosystems and the nature that we are trying to protect. So the, uh, mangroves will be affected directly by the cyclones themselves, but also something that we don't often think about is how the communities that are living in those areas may also turn to activities that will actually affect the mangroves as well. So for example, if there is a cyclone in an area, the communities may need to rebuild and then they may need to turn to cut mangrove trees in order to rebuild. So that is one direct impact that we see from the cyclones in mangrove areas. And in that sense, that's why also as an environmental conservation organization, we need to look into disaster work as well. 
All right. You had mentioned other risks that these coastal communities face. Are there other hazards and risks that these communities face where mangroves might not actually provide adequate protection? Yes. Yeah, so basically, in all of these cases, uh, mangroves is just one piece of, of the puzzle. So we really need to think about building the capacity for green disaster risk reduction and reconstruction aside from the mangrove conservation. And that's what uh, our team focuses on. So really complementing the conservation of mangroves with this mainstreaming of environmentally friendly practices for disaster risk management and reconstruction. All right, maybe give me a bit more detail there. So what are you doing to help these communities beyond protecting and restoring the mangroves? So I think you were alluding to that, but what are some of the specific items? Yeah, so what we do um, and what we are working very closely with the country offices for everything that we do within this project is we are training on tools and approaches that make those connections between disaster risk reduction and environmental issues. So one specific example is we worked closely with the WWF Madagascar office last year to organize two trainings in the two landscapes where the project is being implemented. So one in the northern area and one in the western coastline of Madagascar. And in these trainings, we covered key concepts and tools, like our green recovery and reconstruction toolkit, and the flood green guide, which focuses on natural and nature-based flood management. So in that training, we had participants from the WF Madagascar staff but also participants from other NGOs, community-based organizations on the ground, and governmental institutions that are managing disaster risk. So beyond that capacity building, we are also helping the Madagascar WWF office as they are establishing partnerships and connections with disaster risk management agencies so that we really have a solid foundation for green recovery, reconstruction, and risk reduction practices to be mainstreamed. Great. All right. So what has surprised you in your work on this project? Um, so I think one big surprise, and I maybe already mentioned it, was the issue with strong winds that some of these local communities are experiencing and making fishing activities difficult. And so they are really causing livelihood challenges because it is getting more and more difficult to go out to fish and more and more dangerous to do so. So that is a hazard that we uh, hadn't heard as much. Uh, and I think one of the hazards that people maybe don't think about as much, but it was really creating a lot of challenges for them and pushing them to maybe have to find alternative livelihood activities. All right. Last question. You've probably visited many mangrove forests from around the world. Do you have any favorites? Um, I think they're all different, but I have visited some in Galapagos, which are very beautiful. I'm actually originally from Ecuador. Um, so I think maybe that could be one of my favorites. All right. You're going with the home team. That's that's understandable. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. Thank you, Luz, so much for what you're doing. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Claudia Duran, field officer at Yucatan, Mexico. So what is Climate Crowd? Uh, it's a survey uh, composing a uh, couple questions. There are five questions. It's an open survey that uh, we do in the communities to to know how climate change affects natural resources and how the people adapt to climate change. All right, let's hear a bit about what you've been hearing from these communities. So what are some of the general themes that you're hearing in the, the feedback? 
Well, because these communities are fishing communities, the responses we are having are very related to their fishing activities. For example, the weather has changed a lot. They used to be very consistent, in the, but in the recent years, the storms and the cold fronts and dry seasons are been changing a lot, and that affects uh, fisheries. And also, they are more exposed to storms when they do their activities and those kind of things. What do the communities say the biggest changes in climate are, and how are they affecting their lives? Well, they depend a lot in the in the rains because of the that affects their their fishing activities and they say they cannot go fishing uh, anymore uh, for long periods of times and also they are not very sure if it's because of climate change or because of over exploitation but fisheries have decreased a lot and so they have to go further away to fish and they are more exposed to storms doing that does the issue of climate change come up, though, in your survey work, or are you talking about those bigger issues? Do they even mention it? Well, yes, they, they mention the climate has changed and the cold fronts are more uh, longer. But they, when I uh, ask about climate change, they know, know about it. So they, they, they know some changes have happened in recent years, but they, they don't know what, what's the reason. Okay, so how are people responding to these climate changes? Well, there are different adaptations, like uh, when they cannot go fishing, they rely on tourism, but sometimes that that's, that's also affected because of uh, climate change. So other things like illegal wood harvest, and they do illegal hunting sometimes, and also the population is growing and they don't have more spaces to build more houses, and they sometimes they cut the mangroves to build more houses, and those are the, the spaces they get more flooded. So one thing they are doing is people who have the economic resources build a second floor in their house because the first one get flooded, and also they build a house inland. Or if they can't do that, they rely on, on family who lives elsewhere, and they move during the storms. So when you... Talk to public. In my own experience talking to public, there's always some surprises that, you know, you can't really predict because they have a lot of interesting perspectives. Any surprises when you were doing this survey work? Yes, we didn't know the a lot of, yeah, harvesting of wood. Uh, we didn't know that it was a, a big issue, but it is. It happens when they cannot go fishing, they cut the mangrove trees to do charcoal and to sell them. Yeah, it's one of the ways to adapt and it's another uh, affectation to mangroves. Will mangroves have a role to play in helping these communities adapt to climate change? Yes, of course, because uh, mangroves are the protection for the hurricanes, and it's one of the the biggest uh, threats to these communities. And also in recent years have been a lot of uh, storms, long storms, and they get flooded. So they are very dependent in the natural services mangroves give them. Okay, so not just the mangroves, but what else will these communities need to adapt to climate change? Well, many strategies. For example, well, they need to planify way more for the storms and also better planify the infrastructure of their communities. And we are looking for strategies for them to adapt. 
So I went through some of the responses on the survey. There's been interesting, interesting answers, and I thought it was an interesting potential adaptation they can do. Is one of the communities as a something else for tourism is the there's a cenote in the area, and people are overusing it, and they'd like to open up another cenote. And in my head, I thought, oh, opening another cenote could be a climate adaptation because it's alleviating this coastal pressure. So what what's the story there? Yes, because tourism is growing in recent years, there is a lot of people going to one of the cenotes. But there are also a group of people who wants to open new ones. There is one who is very uh, beautiful and likely to be open. But there is also another uh, part of the community who doesn't want that because they say the cenote is going to be very affected because of the people. So they, there, is, there is making conflict in the community now. So potentially it could be a maladaptation to open up that extra cenote. Yes, it could be a maladaptation. So we, we are, we are analyzing now. <laughs> so what happens now? You've done the survey work. What are you going to do with this information? Well, we're going to use this information to planify another adaptation measures or, or to, to know better how we can work with these communities. And will you do another survey in time to determine and maybe their answers will change? Yes, uh, the the first now the first time the we did the service it was two years ago. Then now are doing it again, and in in the future we do it we will do it again to to see the changes. All right, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Sean, are there any takeaway messages from the segment we just listened to? Yeah, Doug, thanks. First of all, I hope that your audience learned a little bit about the important contributions our Environment and Disaster Management Program and the Climate Crowd Program are making to this mangrove and community and climate project, particularly on applying this second strategy, nature-friendly adaptation. And then I guess the takeaway is really about the importance of local knowledge and talking to people to understand how climate change is affecting their lives. Talking to people, we learned a lot of things. So I said at the beginning of this segment that what we're finding in communities is that when people aren't prepared for climate shocks and stresses, they turn to activities that are degrading nature, like cutting mangroves. Both Luce and Claudia mentioned how stronger winds are preventing people from going out and fishing. We learned that in both Madagascar and in Mexico. We didn't really know that until we went out into the communities and spoke to people. And what Claudia discovered that when people can't go out fishing, they need other sources of income. So what they're doing, they're cutting down mangroves to make charcoal as a second source of income. And then you mentioned that, you know, the the community wants to open up a new cenote to supplement their income due to loss of fishing. And we're concerned that could do damage to the environment there. So we really need to find alternatives for people that improve their livelihoods, supplement lost income when they can't go fishing, but in ways that are not damaging the environment. So what can they do besides cut mangroves to make charcoal? If they have to open this cenote for ecotourism, can we do that in a way that's environmentally responsible and minimizing the impact on nature in the area? Well, it was interesting talking to both Luce and Claudia. With Luce, I just find it fascinating that you guys at WWF have this Environment and Disaster Management Program. I've worked with Anita Van Breda before, and she's part of that program. And it's, I think, really ambitious of you guys to even have a program dedicated to that. And then to Claudia's work with Climate Crowd, it is not easy 
talking to people out in the public you think it would be, but just getting consistent information, useful information, and, and she really did. So I think that's a useful tool that not everyone gets right. Okay, Sean, let's talk about the third strategy, helping nature adapt to climate change. And you're going to explain how the Mexico workshop that I got to attend fits right into this third strategy, right? Right. So this strategy, I sometimes think that conservationists aren't paying enough attention to. We're focused on strategy one, restoring nature to provide ecosystem services. But we often forget that ecosystem services are themselves at risk to climate change. And if we want to rely on them in the future, we have to manage those risks on ecosystems. So many of the guests we already heard from, Karen, Pilar, Luz, talked about how climate change, especially cyclones, strong storms, are directly affecting mangroves. Other things affect mangroves, like the availability of freshwater. And then Sid reminded us that we have to consider that mangrove ecosystems are dynamic and that we have to understand how they respond to climate change if we're going to rely on them for climate change adaptation and climate change mitigation and for livelihoods. So with this strategy, Climate Smart Conservation, we're really trying to understand the risk to mangroves and what we can do to best ensure their survival as the climate continues to change. Where should we restore them? What species should we use? How much space do they need to migrate inland with sea level rise? So as you said, Doug, you attended the workshop in Mexico last October, and I'm so jealous I didn't get to go. At that workshop, we brought together people from all four countries participating in the Mangroves for Community and Climate Project, as well as our academic and local partners, to work on a climate-smart planning tool for conservation. And in this segment, we're going to hear from Nicole Chabonet. She works at WWFUS, and she's been coordinating the development of this tool. And then from Dr. Catherine Lovelock, at the University of Queensland, and she's going to talk about her research on how mangroves respond to climate change. And then we'll hear from a few other participants in the workshop to hear their thoughts on the tool and what they've learned. All right, let's hear from Nicole and Catherine. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Nicole Chabonet of World Wildlife Fund. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Great to be here. All right, let's get started. We're going to talk about mangroves, but tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, your role there at World Wildlife Fund. Sure. I'm a senior program officer in the Climate Adaptation and Resilience team, and I focus particularly on climate risk management and everything around climate smart conservation. Excellent. Okay, so let's talk about your role in the Mangroves for Community and Climate Project. What do you do there? I am coordinating the Climate Smart component. So basically, we are creating a new tool. So the tool, which we have a working title for it, and it's a mouthful, it's a Climate Smart Mangrove Conservation Decision Support Tool. And just like the what the tool's name suggests, its purpose is to provide guidance on how to explicitly consider and address climate change risk in mangrove conservation. So the teams uh, are working through the tool first by implementing a vulnerability assessment based on site-specific characteristics and climate exposures. So that means the climate hazards that are unique to that site. And then going through these steps helps them incorporate that knowledge or that information before selecting management actions that they can do to reduce that site-specific vulnerability of the mangrove. All right. A lot of people don't even understand how these tools are created. So can you give a little bit of that history? So how was that tool actually developed? It was developed in a very participatory and collaborative approach. 
So we, as you know, we are five different WWF teams working on this single project. And from the very beginning, we wanted to have everyone engage and come together. We understand that, you know, the value of a tool really comes from having people engage from the very onset of what we want the tool's purpose to be. How do we want it to, you know, be structured? And what is the outcomes that we're seeking to achieve through the tool's implementation? So from the very beginning, we've had um, a process of doing literature review with our partners at the University of Queensland, uh, developing the structure of the tool. And then we've been doing trial runs of the tool. And you participated actually in the field testing portion of uh, trialing this tool in Mexico. And we had members of the Madagascar, Colombia, Fiji and Mexico teams join us in Merida. We wanted to really make sure we we had the field component where we collectively gathered uh, information on the site and also got that perspective before we went into a workshop setting and tried to run through the tool with that information. Okay, so how long total has it taken to develop the tool? So the tool's development started with the planning, which happened at the end of 2021. And then since mid-2022, we've been working with the field teams. So with monthly meetings to review the content of the tool. And then also, you know, the field testing, which happened in October. And since then, we've had trial runs with uh, the application of the tool to four different sites in each country. All right. So you'd mentioned the workshop in Mexico, which was a fantastic event. It, I, it was great to be there with you guys. Can you elaborate more on that? Like who showed up for that? Who was participating? So we invited uh, representatives from each of the WWF teams. And we, since it was hosted in Mexico, we invited local partners, which were based in Merida, as well as our academic partners, which include University of Queensland, uh, Griffith University, and of course, um, the America Adapts podcast. All right. Yes. Thank you for letting me participate in that. So you've been in the thick of this tool for a while and you know all about it and you probably have just your own perceptions of it. What was it like being there in Mexico and seeing these other people that even though they know generally that that what the tool's about, just working with it, just getting to see it firsthand and, and testing it out in the sense of being at the workshop? What was it like for you to kind of see that? Well, it was definitely a reminder that we really do our best work when we come together as a team. and. Our organization is international and the value of having team members and colleagues from different countries come and, you know, show their experience working already on mangroves, all of us having dialogue and discussing how to best create a product that can be, you know, uh, user-friendly, practical, and that in the end will generate the results that we want as part of this project to increase the resilience of both the mangrove ecosystem and the communities that are involved. So for me, it was an amazing experience to meet my colleagues, which so far I have only met through Zoom, and to meet yourself because we have been um, discussing a lot through email before we met in person. And just having the time to visit the field, you know, so visiting those mangrove sites, that was really fun. I'm sure you enjoyed it too. I remember we even got some craps on on people's legs and we got to tread through very thick mangrove before we got to a very degraded site. So it was really a, a, an amazing experience. Yes, it was fantastic. And I, I would hope too that so much work is done inside the office and you know the, the tool you guys got to go out in the field. I was there just witnessing it, but for you guys to kind of go out there and then come back and kind of look at the tool from seeing that real world, it must've been really useful and really, I guess, productive process for you. 
Yes, it really was amazing. You know, you can never substitute the importance of being out in the sites where you're actually going to be working and applying the tool. My name is Catherine Lovelock. I'm professor at the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Queensland. Can you give us some of the background on the research that you do? I am really interested in how mangroves and other coastal wetlands, and by other coastal wetlands I mean seagrasses, salt marshes, and actually supratidal forests and other ecosystems as well, and how they respond to climate change. Then I'm also interested in their role in helping us uh, adapt to climate change. Okay, so really briefly, but give us a little bit of history. How did you get involved with this type of research? I've always worked on mangroves since my PhD, and I used to work on uh, the ecophysiology, so how the plants uh, acquire carbon dioxide, how they grow, what stimulates their growth. And over time, of course, that became really important for understanding the role of these ecosystems in carbon sequestration. And, I, I mean, I've had quite a long career by this stage and have uh, worked on climate change issues in a range of different ecosystems. And so it's just sort of a natural progression, really, to be focusing on these two, uh, two elements right now. Okay, so you've been involved with mango research for a long time, and climate change seems to be, it's, it's accelerating people's interest in it. And we've heard quite a bit, but I want to hear from you, or how are mangroves vulnerable to climate change? So mangroves are vulnerable to climate change because they really mark the, the, the boundary between land and sea. So their distribution is absolutely tied to sea level. So that means, of course, as sea level changes, that they are likely to be affected. I mean, in addition to that, they're higher plants. They acquire CO2 from the atmosphere. So, of course, they're directly influenced by uh, increases in elevated CO2. And then they're also really sensitive to the availability of fresh water. I mean, everybody sees that mangroves sit in salt water, but their growth and productivity is really linked to the fresh water that arrives at the coasts as well in many places. So when that is changing, either due to increased precipitation or decreased precipitation, then, of course, they are uh, likely to change and respond to those pressures. Okay, so you had mentioned things like salinity when you're talking about mangroves forest. It's not complicated. So we're storing a mangrove forest can you give us more of that background and why it's more complicated than people think of just, oh, we're just going to restore in their native habitat? Mangroves are really sensitive to the inundation regimes. And sometimes they are hard to sort of understand when you're just standing there because, of course, the, 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 the level of the tide changes throughout the month, throughout the year, you know, and and people sort of think that mangroves are, they just grow in salt water, so we just plant them where there's water. But the truth is that they actually need quite a limited amount of inundation to establish. If it's too deep, basically they drown. So you really have to know about the biology of mangroves to get, you know, restoring them uh, correct. Otherwise, you're going to have failure. And that's happened in a lot of places because people have been focused on planting millions of 
of propagules, which are the seedlings of some of the mangrove species that you can just push in the ground. And often they are planting them in locations where the water's too deep. Is the conservation community doing enough to integrate climate risk into mangrove conservation, sort of building upon the notion of conservation maybe being a bit different than adaptation? I think people are broadly aware that climate change is a risk. You know, it's really an emerging threat that people are starting to see the influence of climate change on their mangrove ecosystems. So I think there's been broad awareness, but probably not enough attention. And, you know, researchers have been talking about this for a long while, right? But sometimes the uptake of research into policy and strategies on the ground can be, you know, relatively slow. So one of the big things for mangrove survival into the, you know, over the next century is really leaving room on the landward side for them to migrate, right? So if you build a wall, if you build a a levee, of course that's going to interrupt that potential to move backwards as sea levels rise. And that is one of the biggest issues for coastal wetlands, for salt marshes as well. You know, if there's no land left on the landscape for them as sea levels rise, then we can expect that they will, you know, their distribution, their, their area will decline over time. So it's sort of critical for conservation that if you have a standing mangrove, that you actually leave some space at the back for them to move into. Now, that is not going to be easy and it could be controversial because sometimes they are going to migrate into areas of high biodiversity that we really love as well. So freshwater wetlands, connected freshwater wetlands. I think there has to be kind of a whole lot more thought put into the changes that might occur and then, you know, preparing people and communities for those changes. What are some of the gaps in mangrove research? Mangroves, we have a very lively mangrove research community, that is for sure. So globally, we know that mangroves are going to be influenced by sea level rise. And regionally, we kind of know that too. But actually, the the devil is in the detail. And on a site-by-site basis, I think there hasn't been really enough work to understand, you know, the the influence of climate change on mangroves because the influence of climate change is variable over sites, right? So there's a lot of that variation that we really know, we really need to still, you know, get a handle on. I think there's not enough research on that change, the, the likely change that's going to occur and what the implications are. And then I also think there's really not enough research to understand the role of mangroves at any particular place or in, in coastal protection, in that, that adaptation function. We sort of got a broad handle on it, but woof, at any particular site is really hard to say. One thing that's really interesting is things like, well, although we know about waves in the open ocean, waves on the coast, you know, there's really no great off-the-shelf product that anybody could look at. And when you say, okay, the interaction of storm surges with mangroves, then, again, we've got a very sort of broad picture of how that might happen, but it's not very clear for um, a lot of situations. What's your advice for conservation groups like World Wildlife Fund when it comes to mangrove adaptation, mangrove conservation? 
my advice generally is that if you're concerned with those things, then great. The non-government organisations like WWF have been doing a fantastic job in the mangrove space. I mean, in the early, in the 80s, mangroves were being lost at like 2% per year. You know, huge, huge levels of deforestation globally. And that has been turned around. You know, now we're down at, it's still negative, but man, it's so, it's closer to point two percent loss rather than two percent so and i think the ngo communities have been extremely influential in in reversing that loss those global losses you know they've been really really important so more power to the you know the wwfs and other ngos of the world i'd say you know you have to really keep on on the message i think looking at climate change very very clearly as a negative but also possibly the opportunities as we go forward. So the opportunities for expansion of mangrove habitat with sea level rise is a is an important thing to focus on. All right, last question for you. For my listeners, it, is there a favorite spot in Australia to visit a mangrove forest that you could recommend? Uh, everybody loves the Daintree. So the Daintree River is in the very small pocket of wet tropics uh, of Australia, but they're the mangroves are huge and, uh, well, you know, that they're reaching 30 metres. It's adjacent to the uh, rainforest. So if you go walking on the mangrove boardwalks there, you may spot a cassowary. And, um, of course, you will see lots and lots of very large crocodiles, which are a feature of the Dane Tree. I thought you were going to say Nudgee Beach. <laughs> nope. Well, Nudgee's beautiful, but um, but uh, the Daintree is probably everybody's all-time favorite. Understood. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, Gemma Parandre, environmental scientist with the University of Queensland. Okay, Gemma, where are we headed right now? We're headed an uh, hour and a half north of Merida to the coast, where we've got three mangrove sites that we're going to be visiting. Okay, so what are we going to do at each of those sites? So yesterday we split the room into four different groups and each group was looking at a different site and a different scenario. So we're going to go to each site as a whole group and start looking at some of the mangrove conditions, um, getting a bit of a situational awareness, a um, bit of a feel for like what the mangroves are actually like in the flesh, um, looking at the condition of some of the trees, the grounds, the topography, water quality, that kind of thing, so that we can start feeding that into the how we actually work through the tool and process the tool. All right, so in theory, the, the tool is going to help us manage these three different sites in the future if they decide to do that. Yeah, so the idea of the tool is to make sure that when we're planning conservation, restoration or management works at sites like this, that we're making decisions that are climate change adaptive and climate smart. So that's things like making sure that we're putting effort into the right places that the, if we're going to do restoration, the res- restoration is going to be resilient to impacts of climate change like sea level rise or changes in salinity. Do you know anything about these particular mangroves? What kind of ecosystem this is? No. <laughs> okay. That's My name is Ixchel and I am the leader of the Oceans program in WWF Mexico. 
Uh, we are going to visit uh, a site here in Merida that uh, where, where we can find a mangrove. So any expectations of what we're going to see? Well, I know that we are going to, to see both a, 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 a mangrove that is in a real good state, but also we are going to see some places that are de degraded. So we are going to see a lot of, of diversity in there, and we are going to learn a lot. Any chance that we might see some wildlife? Ah, yes, of course. I think that we might see at least some birds. <laughs> Is there any chance we are going to get bit by mosquitoes? Yes, we are going to be bitten by mosquitoes, so we are we are using the proper clothes <laughs> to avoid that. Uh, Ryan Bartlett, Director of Climate Risk Management and Resilience at WWF US. So our challenge today is to, is to figure out if what we've designed so far based on a desktop and some practical experience from the team, but mostly through, you know, Zoom calls and remote work, um, if these real site-based conditions can actually be filtered through this tool to help really guide the next steps in the conservation work, uh, the adaptation and resilience work on the ground. So could these sites actually be you know restored at a future date are those yeah. the kind of sites yes yes that's that's the objective these are these are real places that are going to see real increased investment um in restoration in the coming years all right describe exactly what we're going to kind of do out there how are we getting around we're we've got some boats uh we're also going to be tromping around getting our feet wet it's literally uh, muddy boots conservation which is a, a phrase we use in in our work but we don't actually uh, get to experience that often so this is one of those rare cases at least for me you know based in the u.s but this is getting out into the field and so we'll uh, yeah we'll take some boats and, and visit the sites and then actually literally get our feet wet and, and trudge through some mud all right we were told about the mud and we we're supposed to wear some boots any nervousness that you're wearing tevas <laughs> i'm not nervous i'm not this is, this is not my first rodeo i think i'll be okay Jaime Villarreal, Climate Change Adaptation Officer, WWF, Mexico. Okay, so you've been in the thick of this climate smart decision support tool. You've been here in the workshop doing a lot of things. How do you think it's going? Well, the feedback that we're having into the climate smart adaptation uh, tool is very important because we have been in the field. We have acknowledged the, the information gaps, and uh, we have uh, reached out to the possible ways to to go around them and to have a, a better decision-making tool. Okay, so there's people here from other countries, Madagascar, Fiji, Colombia. What have you been hearing from them? How do you think they've been responding to the tool? It's been a great uh, participation from every, every one of them. Like from Fiji, they were telling us uh, how the government is related to the mangrove forests and what they are able to do in them and what communities do. And with Colombia, they were telling us about how they have this river mangrove forest associated to upstream and downstream effects of uh, what is happening with other forests in the south or in the north of the, of the areas. Okay, so the first day we were looking at the decision support tool and there was a lot of guesswork on salinity and sedimentation, but then we had the ability to go out and do a field trip. How did that affect your ability to fill in that support tool? Well, having local knowledge and experts 
telling us all, all the history of the place, the changes they have noticed over time. They have, like, in some places, 20 years or 5 or 10 years of, of experience working there. Uh, it's a lot of information that is not simple to get into the tool, but it's really important to know it. So a lot of information may not be considered immediately because it's not available everywhere. But in this case, this information particularly is very, very important for us. So did you feel a lot more confident coming back into the office and working on the tool after having gone on that field trip? Yes. Yes, the field trip really filled some gaps and raised some issues that we need to consider to apply the tool. Okay, and so in the last couple of days, what has stood out for you as you've been talking about the tool? Like heading out, are people prepared to use it? Well, with the feedback, we have noticed, uh, like, some information is not so clear, so we need to figure it out, but some information is, is really quite explicit, so we can use it as it is. In this case, uh, the tool is being improved as we walked through it and as we went to the field. So adapting mangroves to climate change can be quite complex, and of course the tool talks about that, but could you give us some examples of why it's so complex? Well, let's say we're not adapting mangroves. Let's say we're enabling conditions so mangroves will be helping us to tackle climate change. In this case, the tool will help us to acknowledge these key components that we need to address to fulfill the idea that, okay, we need to keep them, and how do we keep them to get us back on track to, to tackle climate change and protect communities? Okay, final question. Do you have a favorite mangrove spot here in Mexico? I have been only uh, here in Yucatan and in Sonora, and they are both awesome. They are both great. They are different kind of them. We, you have tall mangroves, you have short mangroves, so it's amazing. All of them are amazing. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks to you. Have a nice day. Hey, Adapters, we're back with Nicole Chabonet of WWF, and we're going to just get a bit more information on the workshop and the decision support tool. Okay, so we heard from scientists in this episode and WWF staff who attended the workshop in Mexico. What has happened since then? Since the workshop, we've continued to meet online, which, of course, is not the same as being in person in one room, but we've continued to improve the tool. It's actually very much evolved uh, given the feedback that we've received um, in Mexico. And we have uh, developed more of a precise step-by-step -step process for assessing climate risk and selecting the appropriate management interventions that we want to implement on the specific sites that were selected for each country. Okay, and so I think you're, you're sort of explaining this somewhat, but what did you learn from the teams as they applied the tool in their own countries? Well, we learned that there's a lot more that we can still work uh, for the tool to be as user-friendly and as practical as possible. So the tool requires a team to have all data or as much data as possible to in order to assess each of the site characteristics and in order to assess those climate hazards. So we are going to continue to work with the teams on how to provide this guidance on how to uh, inc introduce the, the specific data that they need. Uh, also, they they understand that, you know, the value of this tool is huge and they really want to develop the knowledge that it's needed to implement this tool. 
And we will therefore provide capacity building and work with the broader team, because as you know, we've only engaged with a few representatives of each of the WWF offices, but we will continue to expand that to the broader teams in country. Okay. Related to that, what are the next steps for the tool development? We are finalizing the draft of the tool, which will then be shared with the teams to implement as part of their project activities. And we're also going to be working on a web-based version, which will hopefully increase the functionality and the speed and hopefully be also shared with a broader audience who can implement the tool within different projects that they're working on. Okay, last question. You were able to go scuba diving in a cenote down in Mexico. What was that like? Oh, that was amazing. Yes. Uh, I've never uh, taken dives in cenotes before. So it was a little bit of a challenge for me because, as you know, you go very deep and you go in a cave. So that was just an amazing experience, but also one that lets you see mangroves from under the water, which was also very relevant to the work we were conducting in Media. So it was really, to me, part of the experience of doing the field testing. Awesome. I had a great time in the cenotes too. Well, Nicole, thank you for coming on and thanks for all your help for what my role was in all this and good luck with what you're doing. Thank you, Doug. And please join us again in our following trips. All right. Let's, let's talk to Sean about that. <laughs> all right, Sean, we are back. It was great to hear from Nicole and Catherine, and I'm going to give another plug. Nicole was the absolute glue that held this all together. Nicole, thanks for all your help. You made everything just function fantastically, and you made my life a lot easier. So I appreciate that, and also appreciate your your role in the tool. I also want to give a shout out to Emma Barnes. She was critical in helping coordinate a lot of these interviews. Thanks, Emma. And then it was also interesting talking to Catherine, who's from the Brisbane area, and I used to live in Brisbane. And so it was nice being able to chat about some of the local mangrove forests there. But some commentary from me just about the workshop. We had the opportunity to go on this field trip to see some Mexico mangroves just like on day two, which really helped everyone. I wasn't there informing the tool. I was there just interviewing people. But people came back from that field trip, seeing the mangroves, hearing from the Mexican biologist who understood restoration in the area. And I just think it just flipped their brains in ways that made the whole workshop that much more productive. So that's just some firsthand observation of actually being part of that. And um, the workshop extended for like three days and everyone just just was full on for the entire time. So I, it was interesting seeing how it influenced the tool. Yeah, I heard great things about the workshop and people came back really energized. I mean, it we all kind of got used to not traveling for work over the past three years. And we kind of forgot that it's really great when people come together and then see the work that you're doing in the field to motivate people, to uh, spur innovation and collaboration. And I, I just think we need to do more of this in the future. And I just also want to say I was there to observe so much great work, lots of just information sharing, even happening at those informal moments. So that was fantastic too. All right, John, it was great rehashing what we did at the workshop, but we're at the end of the episode here, but we want to go over a few of the main points. Can you just give us an overview of those three strategies again? Because I think that's so important for people to just kind of keep connecting the dots to what people were saying. Sure. So our approach in all of our adaptation work, which is helping people adapt to climate change in harmony with nature, we need to do three things. We use nature to help people adapt, and then we use complementary adaptation measures that avoid or reduce harm to nature, 
And then third, we help manage the climate risks on nature itself. And we really need all three of those strategies to succeed. We can't rely just on nature without considering that people need more than nature and that nature itself is also vulnerable to climate change. That's why we need to move away from business as usual conservation as a single silver bullet, hoping that everything will solve itself. And I'm hoping through this mangrove and community climate project, we're able to demonstrate how we can apply all three of these strategies and get better results. Thank you, Sean, for reminding us the strategies. And we're going to have all that information in the show notes for this episode. I'm just curious, you've, you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that we we've, we've, we started this off in Kenya and that workshop that I was able to attend with you. Any observations? This is in this process that's unfolded from when you think about what got started with the strategies in Kenya to where we are today coming out of Mexico. Any thoughts? Uh, yeah, we really want to apply these three strategies, but often the way our organizations are structured as each group is maybe working on one of them. And we really need to bring them all together to have a comprehensive approach. So we have experts on ecosystem responses to climate change, people like Catherine Lovelock, and we have people that are understand how the value of using mangroves for ecosystem-based adaptation, people like Siddharth. And we need to bring all those disciplines and all that thinking together throughout all of our work. All right, Sean, you're not going to get away without me asking you this. So where are your favorite mangroves? Yeah, and I've seen quite a few. I've been fortunate to travel all over the world. And you know what? Sometimes mangroves aren't all that impressive. But let me tell you, the best ones I've ever seen are outside of Tumaco, Colombia, on the Pacific coast. The mangroves are ginormous, 60 feet tall, huge trunks. You're going down a boat through these cavernous tangles of mangrove forests. It's just amazing. And anybody that gets to go there would highly recommend a trip to see the mangroves. All right. I want to encourage my listeners, reach out, contact me and let me know what your favorite mangroves are. And I, I'll share that with Sean because I'm sure he'll be curious too. Please do. All right, Sean, this has been fantastic. It's always fantastic partnering with you, partnering with World Wildlife Fund. Very excited to release this episode. Thanks for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you, Doug. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to everyone for participating in this episode and to Sean Martin for grounding us in WWF's Mangroves for Community and Climate Project. As someone who strongly supports nature-based solutions to climate adaptation, I have great respect for WWF's leadership in this field. They have brought together some of the foremost experts in coastal adaptation, and it's clear that mangroves will play a critical role in successful adaptation efforts. And what a fantastic voyage to Meridiac, Mexico. It was my first time visiting this region, and I had a chance to explore Mayan ruins, sample Mayan cuisine, snorkel in stunning cenotes, and of course, wander through Mexican mangroves. I have a deep love for mangroves. As a child, I spent countless hours wading in the mangroves of Sarasota, Florida, with my cast net eyeballing huge schools of mullet. Over the years, I've been fortunate enough to see mangroves from all over the world, from the secluded mangroves in Bocas del Toro, Panama, to the urban mangroves in Nudgee Beach in Brisbane, Australia. I've always been drawn to mangroves, exploring their beauty and ecological secrets. It's wonderful to see that mangroves are finally getting the recognition they deserve as they will undoubtedly play a crucial role in coastal adaptation in the decades ahead. 
If you're interested in learning more about WWF's three-pronged approach to adaptation, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode, which contain numerous reports and resources. You'll also find links to my guests there so you can learn more about the incredible work they are doing. This won't be the last episode I do on Mangroves. There are many more stories to tell. So as you heard, I partnered with WWF in this episode to tell their adaptation story. Are you struggling to effectively communicate your climate adaptation story to the right audience? Are you finding that traditional methods such as webinars and white papers are not resonating with people and promoting your work? If so, consider telling your story through a podcast. Sponsoring a whole episode of America Adapts is a great way to focus on the work you're doing and share it with climate professionals from around the world. I personally go on location to record sponsored podcasts, which allows for a diverse range of guests to participate. You'll work with me to identify experts who can represent the amazing work you're doing Past partners have included NRDC, University of Pennsylvania and Wharton, UCLA, Harvard, and various corporate clients. By sharing your story with my listeners, who are some of the most influential people in the adaptation space, you'll have the opportunity to reach a wider audience. Additionally, podcasts have a long shelf life, making them a valuable addition to your communication strategy. There is no better way to get your message about adaptation out to some of the most active and influential professionals in the world. Okay, Adapters, I truly enjoy hearing from my listeners. Don't hesitate to reach out and say hello. If you have a suggestion for guests, feel free to let me know. Your feedback is one of the highlights of my week and sometimes leads to exciting opportunities. You can reach me at americadapts at gmail.com. So don't hesitate to send me an email. Okay, Adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.